Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Kathy Kelly and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is March 18th, 2022. March Madness is upon us for our listeners in the U.S. who are basketball fans. And as the pressure ramps up on the court, we're also seeing pressure mount up on some pharma industry issues. First up is the CMS coverage decision on Alzheimer's drugs. Kathy, you wrote an interesting story this week about a letter writing campaign arguing for a more restrictive decision. Yeah, um, we've we've done a number of stories on the comments on this draft national coverage determination. Um, just to you know, sort of review, the CMS is, has proposed that it would restrict coverage for Alzheimer's drugs, including Aduhelm to use only in, a, in an approved randomized clinical trial. Um, so it has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of comments. Um, the, the, the response or the submissions to this one is greater than any I've seen since I've been covering CMS. There are nearly 10,000 comments posted um, wow. in this docket. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, you do see evidence of various grassroots Letter writing campaigns, you know, very often organizations will send out sort of template comments and then get people, individuals to send them in. And there definitely was evidence of that here. Um, but one of the uh, largest ones that that I saw as I went through the comments, um, there were nearly 5,000 letters actually supported the decision, which really surprised me. I mean, normally, in a situation like this where you know CMS is proposing to restrict access to a drug, you would see individual comments that oppose that, arguing that they want access. But, but in this case, um, these letters supported it um, basically because they thought that FDA made a mistake in approving this drug in the first place. That's what these letters said. Um, and, you know, when I sort of started digging into this, I found that the the campaign was organized by a community activist group called More Perfect Union. And their their real purpose here was to sort of, quote, take on big pharma. Apparently, this campaign was prompted by the, the initial high cost of Aduhelm. It was going to be $56,000 a year. And um, CMS's... Um, subsequent announcement that part uh, Medicare premiums would be going up, you know, the most ever um, in order to cover the cost of, of um, you know, reimbursing for Aduhelm and other drugs like it. So this organization sent out, you know, uh, solicitations to its, its list and, um, you know, urged them to, to, support this decision because in their mind, it was a way of limiting costs and potentially, um, you know, reversing the increase on on premiums. Um, the, the letters themselves were kind of interesting too because they, they, they took a, a, they were pretty sophisticated in the way they criticized FDA's approval of Aduhelm, they they demonstrated an understanding of the accelerated approval process, and even you know Medicare's standards for coverage, which is reasonable and necessary, um, which I thought was sort of 
surprising for your average person to be so sophisticated. <laughs> and then I found that the the language was actually lifted from comments that Public Citizen had submitted to CMS in the beginning of this process for developing the NCD. Public Citizen confirmed that to me, and they said that they were happy, you know, that their their perspective was being um, ad adopted widely. Um, they also had a separate letter writing campaign as part of this, which didn't get nearly as many uh, participants, but anyway. Um, so that the campaign did get an impressive number of submissions, but it's hard to know how, how much of an impact it will have. I mean, usually CMS does put a lot of weight into patient concerns, um, but in this case, <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, it's not sort of your typical sort of patient concerns. Also, they do have a policy, which, which they're pretty upfront about um, in considering you know, multiple identical or similarly worded comments as one comment. So they would look at these 5,000 letters as basically representing one, you know, one comment. Um, the other thing that that's kind of struck me about this is, you know, how many people are still motivated by the, the notion of big pharma, you know, um, uh, imposing these high prices for drugs that don't work very well on the American public. And it just shows that there is a lot of public sentiment out there that still, you know, really feels that way. Um, I, I, it made me think too that I hope the, the developers of the, the next group of monoclonal antibodies for Alzheimer's that are coming along, and that would be Lily Roche and Esai, take note. And uh, well, I'm sure they have. So I, I doubt we'll see prices like $56,000 for those drugs when they come along. It's interesting. Yeah. It reminds me back of my days when I was a an intern on Capitol Hill. And, you know, one day you get like a couple of postcards and they say the exact same thing. And then yeah. over the next you know few weeks, you'd get several hundred of them. And, yeah. you know, it would it would drive the people in the office crazy because they would have to collect them all first and then like have to draft this one response and send it out to Oh you yeah! Know, wow. However many hundred people sent the thing in, it was ba and it would basically just be a postcard. They all typed in the same, and then you someone would just sign their name or type their name or print it or something. And yeah, you know, it, it, yeah. The, the the question is, does that does that influence anybody? And you know, I know. I, I, your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. But well, well, I mean, CMS says it won't. I mean, it is. It, I have to say, it, it was pretty impressive. It does. It does certainly increase the workload. Now they have to go through, you know, ten thousand comments. I mean, I'm sure they have a way of probably screening out ones when there are so many that are identical. But um, it did increase my workload. <laughs> <laughs> Think of the reporters, people. That when you uh, that's right when you, uh, when you decide <laughs> yeah, to comment. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Um, well, Kathy, I thought it was a, a really interesting uh, um, uh, story, and uh, you know, you're certainly right about the uh, um, the um, subsequent developers and sort of, kind of what their uh, strategies will uh, um, will be. You uh, you also wrote a little bit about uh, um, uh, pricing this week uh, in terms of uh, what uh, um, you know what uh, uh, Biogen could do, or even through kind of subsequent uh, sponsors could do in terms of, sort of kind of how they price these. Uh, these drugs, uh, um, if they end up yeah. getting accelerated approval or uh, um, 
I, I suppose uh, um, even non-accelerated approval. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about about that and sort of kind of uh, um, yeah. how might that how that might work on the uh, the, the private side, uh, maybe yeah. even on the Medicare side. Yeah, well, it's true. Right. That was um, from a, a presentation I heard at the AHIP meeting. They had a policy conference this week, and this guy named Michael Sherman, who's uh, chief medical officer at a payer called Point Point Twenty Three Health, um, uh, was advocating the idea of outcomes-based purchasing contracts for these drugs. And the idea would be that um, payers would cover them, but they wouldn't pay for them unless it, you know, they showed evidence of clinical benefit that they that they really did what you know the developers said that they would do. Um, Michael Sherman has been an advocate for value-based contracts for years, and you know he's been pretty innovative. Um, it sounds like a you know an interesting idea. I, these kinds of contracts are, I think, pretty hard to do. For one thing, it's hard for a manufacturer and a payer to agree on whatever the outcome will be. You know, obviously in this case, payers would would want evidence of actual either, you know, a, a slowing of cognitive decline or something like that. And, you know, what manufacturers have would be data on, you know, a biomarker like plaque removal. So that would be, you know, the first obstacle to get over. How, how would they right. agree on the outcome of interest and then who would track it and how it would be tracked? And those are all issues. But, um, you know, it, it does seem like a, an interesting idea. Yeah, the... Uh, um the uh, the whole controversy with the edge helmets were kind of uh, made people think about uh, um, you know not just for kind of what the you know uh, CMS uh, um, uh, standards should be but uh, you know whether or not these uh, demonstration programs in terms of coverage with uh, um, uh, you know evidence uh, um, development uh, whether that's even constitutional you've seen some some arguments about that uh, yeah. too so how it shakes out will kind of perhaps sort of change. Uh, um, Change reimbursement forever just because of uh, just because of one product. So it's very interesting to see how these uh, these public yeah. pressure campaigns can uh, um, can affect it. Yeah, um, CMS really has not done many of these national coverage decisions for drugs at all. Um, so that's you know sort of precedent setting. And the idea that they are proposing, as you said, coverage with evidence development would be you know would really set a new precedent and. Um, I think that's why developers are fighting pretty hard against it. But I guess, you know, we will see. It's hard to imagine them backing off evidence development altogether. But, um, you know, I, I'm guessing there will be modifications uh, in the final, which is due in uh, early April, uh, I think, the final decision. I was going to ask, it, it, so we're down to like a couple of weeks left now before we can we find yeah. out what they what they decide to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if they're still kind of sweating about this or if they've made up their mind. I know they did. I mean, they did let the deadline slip once before when they did an NCD, as they call it, for the CAR-Ts. That one was like three months late, which I think was kind of unusual. So I guess that's possible. But I don't know. It seems like they I think there have been comments that they expect to meet this deadline April 11th. So, hmm. yeah, this seems to have a lot more uh, attention around it than uh, um, than mm -hmm. the uh, um, earlier ones, uh, 
yeah. have. And they were a bit, little early on the draft. They issued the draft, uh, was it a day or two early? Uh, yeah, I think it was, a day, it was a day yeah. early. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So yeah. There's precedent that they'll be on time. So, yeah. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that's good. Well, we'll certainly be watching here as we count down the days. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, into spring and and the into the the decision. Yeah, <laughs> true. So, well, Kathy, you get to stay on the hot seat for the next one here. Uh, it looks like Senate Democrats are not ready to give up on drug pricing reform, even though yeah. the window seems to be closing here. Yeah, um, yeah. The Senate Finance Committee held yet another hearing on drug pricing reform this week. Um, it, basically, the point seemed to be to kind of reignite momentum behind drug pricing legislation. Um, The legislation has essentially stalled because the vehicle, the legislative vehicle it was attached to, the Build Back Better Act, um, uh, you know, is in limbo now that um, it has met with opposition from a key vote, Democratic vote in the Senate. That's Senator Joe Manchin from uh, West Virginia. So now the question is what happens to the drug pricing provisions and um, the Senate Finance Committee was the the, the committee that really um, kind of led development of the package that ended up in the Build Back Better Act. I mean, it was based on legislation passed in the House, um, HR3, it was kind of watered down in, in order to, to try to get broader support, but it was finance that took the lead on that. Um, and so, so here they are again. Um, the, the hearing itself um, included policy experts and a patient advocate. So, you know, no drama with, you know, CEOs or um, company people um, there. And uh, the discussion focused mainly on the Medicare price negotiation aspect of the package that's in Build Back Better. That's easily the most controversial part of the um, the package. It, it sets up a a system for Medicare to directly negotiate prices with manufacturers for drugs covered in in Part B and D. Um, this has been a long-running battle that uh, pharma has, you know, staunchly fought for for many years. Um, at the hearing, Democrats and Republicans pretty much fell into their typical, you know, postures in that debate. Uh, Democrats in favor of negotiations, Republicans opposed. Um, so it it seemed like kind of business as usual <laughs> at the hearing, but a, a few things did stand out to me. Um, a couple of Republican senators, Senator Grassley of Iowa and Cassidy of Louisiana, you know, urged Wyden and the Democrats to drop the focus on negotiation and try to advance legislation that includes other reforms that have bipartisan support. Um, both mentioned legislation that was actually passed by the Finance Committee in 2019 when Grassley was chair, and that included um, uh, penalties on price increases. These would be mandatory rebates that manufacturers would have to pay if prices increased faster than inflation, and an out-of-pocket cap um, for beneficiaries in Medicare Part D uh, that would be accompanied by other um, redesign uh, of the benefit. So, um, but but it does not include uh, negotiation. And what Grassley in particular said is that, you know, at this point, Democrats should go with something that has bipartisan support just to get something done, because it's likely that 
Democrats are going to lose seats in Congress um, after the November midterm elections. And they may be in a position where Republicans are in the majority and they won't be able to get anything done. So why not pass something now um, that and then they can, you know, have some achievement <laughs> on drug Sorry, pricing? I'm Sorry, I'm laughing at Republicans telling Democrats, you know, giving them political advice. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and also sort of, you know, in favor of drug pricing, which I thought was kind of. Um, but but, you know, Wyden didn't seem inclined to go that route, you know, arguing, for example, that just passing an out of pocket cap um, in Part D, which is really what industry is pushing for, um, would just lead to cost shifting without the price negotiation piece. So. Um, what's going to happen? <laughs> um, Wyden seems committed to, you know, persevering in this battle. Um, but I, I did think he seemed a little weary. I mean, a couple of times he, he described the battle against pharma over drug pricing reform as the longest since the Trojan War. Um, <laughs> but and, and, and there are also signs that industry believes the threat of, of you know, sort of impactful drug pricing reform has passed. There was some data that came out recently showing that um, the annual um, price increases that industry takes in um, January were um, up on average a little bit this year compared to last year and recent years, suggesting that, you know, industry is feeling a little more confident in, you know, sort of reverting to previous practices, maybe because the pressure, you know, seems to be diminishing on, on pricing reform. And the other thing is that just recently, um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that he he wants to bring legislation to the Senate floor for a vote that would cap um, uh, out-of-pocket costs on insulin at $35 a month. Um, this is actually one of the provisions in the Build Back Better Act. It's probably the one with the most bipartisan support, and it, it struck me as, as a possible attempt to to get something done on drug pricing uh, again with you know the the uh, acknowledgement that you know maybe this is the best they can do um but we'll see you know we'll see what happens in the coming months i'm going to ask the $64,000 question for for those of you you know younger people out there that was a game show in the 50s um <laughs> also also just slightly more than the price of agile yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> i i guess is something better than nothing on this? I mean, yeah, like, yeah, okay, we, you know, I'm everyone, you know, people will be happy if they cap the cost of insulin, but going one drug at a time isn't going to cut it. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that that I, I don't, you know, I guess I guess it's, it's something better than nothing. Is is yeah. the is the big question? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I see the wisdom in that. You know, I I I think when you look at that the the insulin legislation. Um, I was talking to a health policy expert when Schumer made that announcement, and she pointed out that it probably wouldn't really help that many people <laughs> um, because there are various programs in the private sector and in, in Medicare right now that sort of do the same thing. But it continues to be something that people talk about when they complain about drug pricing. And so maybe, you know, just being able to uh, for members to go back and be able to tell their constituents, well, we're, you know, we're doing this, um, you know, same with price inflation rebates. I mean, the, the Part D redesign would really probably help um, uh, people 
it would it could well probably would <laughs> result in an increase in premiums but it would it would it would solve a problem at the pharmacy counter and that is something that probably you know the public would see and respond to so i i i see the wisdom in it yeah i mean it's a very understandable talking point you know like uh um, when you're on the stumps, you know, it's like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we've delivered for the American people, we've capped the cost of insulin and um, right. uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, as you as you mentioned earlier, Kathy, it is for cost shifting. It doesn't sort of do anything to sort of kind of actually kind of, you know, squeeze spending out of the system if that's for kind of the actual uh, goal. Right. But if you end up at some point where for kind of, you know, there's some um, broad consensus that sort of no drug should cost more than $35 if you're a patient or or what have you, then through kind of does for kind of push premiums up, and then perhaps there's a uh, becomes a push to uh, to subsidize premiums in some uh, um, uh, bigger way, and uh, um, that would obviously be a big win for pharma because they could sort of continue to sort of kind of uh, you know price as they uh, um, as they see the value of the medicine, and then through kind of it's uh, um, you know um, on the back end uh, supported by uh, um, uh, you know there's these various government uh, um, measures that sort of kind of uh, uh, hide the price, uh, if you will, from uh, um, uh, from the old the ultimate payers, the, the patients and uh, um, and uh, um, you know insurance havers, I guess. Um, yeah. But uh, um, you know, it's it is surprising that sort of the uh, the Democrats don't want to take half the loaf uh, um, uh, here, uh, which yeah. uh, um, you know is uh, as Derek said, sort of kind of a. Uh, um, even even the Republicans see the wisdom of uh, <laughs> doing that. So yeah. I don't know what uh, what's holding them back. So yeah, I mean, I suppose they could continue to, you know, advocate for negotiation, and then finally, you know, drop it and just move ahead with other things. Um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, make them you know put a put a bill on the floor that and just let it fail, just so they can say they voted against against negotiation so we had to go and do this other thing or yeah, yeah something like that right right yeah. yeah i mean you're right i mean it, it is a um you know obviously circa this is why uh republicans are uh, um in favor in, uh, of it in some uh, some way that sort of uh, you know drug prices are one of those few issues where there's broad bipartisan agreement among the electorate as to sort of kind of uh, the fact that they are too high and so uh you know it's sort of, it's a good campaign issue i mean obviously if i were a uh, um Democratic campaign strategists, I would like to notch wins. And so maybe I would say something like, uh, um, you know, we've, uh, um, you know, cat the price of insulin and, uh, you know, next we're going to ensure that everyone has uh, dental care. And, you know, I guess maybe people don't like going to the dentist. Maybe that's not a, not a great selling point. But, you know, there, there's, there's certainly some kind of piecemeal things you could, um, you know, make a make a plank that would sort of kind of continue to kind of have uh, health yeah. salience and sort of kind of work on this uh, um, piece by piece, but uh, um, yeah. I'm, you know, um, it's not my yeah. job, so I'll leave it to other to decide whether dentistry is a good selling point or not. But uh, yeah, I mean, and for pharma too, you know, there's been talk about how getting something done on drug pricing could take the issue off the table, um, and and how that is appealing to the industry, you know, um, that doesn't like they don't like the uncertainty of, you know. Sure possible reforms hanging over their head. Um, and that's, I think, why they're really pushing this Part D redesign. Um, but, you know, I, I do think, and as, as Wyden points out, it, it doesn't really get to pricing reform. It, it could, you know, it caps out-of-pocket spending, 
for beneficiaries, but you know, but that is, as we said, likely to lead to just higher premiums. So is, yeah. is there anything I know, you know, pharma has made the same argument over and over again uh, on this issue, it, you know, that the middlemen are the problem or PBMs are the problem and, and you know, so forth. Is there any interest on Capitol Hill at looking at that, dealing with that? Are there, you know, are there other avenues they could look at here that, or is it just pretty much everyone just dug in on the negotiation part of it? Yeah, you don't hear much about PBMs on Capitol Hill these days. The FTC is is uh, looking at PBMs a little bit though. So, you know, we may see something there, but um, it, it uh, you know, as hard as, as pharma pushed that whole narrative, about the middlemen, it, it just really it seems like the momentum is not there right now, um, you know, for manufacturer rebates. You know, there is that other issue about um, PBMs versus the pharmacists and these um, some of these uh, clawback uh, 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 fees that PBMs get from pharmacists that has gotten subtraction. Um, pharmacists, particularly independent pharmacists, seem seem to do pretty well on Capitol Hill. I think they're a pretty sympathetic <laughs> lobby. So, <laughs> but that doesn't really impact uh, manufacturer rebates. So that's a different story. Yeah. Well, it's one that's definitely not going away anytime soon. So uh, we'll be yeah. keep, we'll be keeping track of it. There'll be plenty, plenty more to do. <laughs> Finally, today, we're going to take a look at the effect of the pandemic on the FDA. The FDA and Booz Allen Hamilton discussed the final assessment of agency hiring practices during a public meeting this week. The assessment included some interesting data on FDA employees thinking about the impact of the pandemic on hiring. More than half of CEDAR and CBER staff said they believe the pandemic had a high or moderate impact on recruiting and retention. And nearly half of hiring managers in the two centers said the pandemic's impact on hiring was negative. Another 37% said it was negative for retention and 43% said it was negative for recruiting. Much of that was attributed to the feeling in those two centers that they bore the brunt of the workload and the workload and burnout associated with COVID-19. However, the FDA's human resources staff said that the pandemic had much less impact. Only 15% of HR managers and 7% of HR staff surveyed said there was a negative impact on recruiting and hiring. And 13% of both groups said that there was a negative impact on retention. About one third of HR managers and staff characterized the pandemic as having a positive impact on recruiting, hiring, and retention. So this report is going to be used to potentially make changes to FDA, you know, hiring, you know, going forward and, and how they approach it. Uh, I'm curious if what you all th see in these numbers, do you think it's harder to recruit to the FDA now? you know, then in, say, non-pandemic times? You know, uh, not uh, um, uh, uh, being a, a witness to sort of either a uh, uh, departure or an onboarding, I, I can't uh, um, uh, speak with direct uh, um, direct certainty on that. You know, uh, just the statistics that uh, you've uh, uh, rattled off, uh, uh, Derek, I think, um, you know, so certainly something we have uh, um, felt uh, um, here and certainly, you know, talking to other people that I've uh, um, uh, heard about uh, is that I think onboarding someone in a fully remote way is really challenging. You know, we've mm -hmm. we've been doing great, but we've all also been working with each other for years when we sort of made the the switch to uh, um, 
all virtual. But when you try to bring someone else in and sort of kind of get them up to speed um, and not being able to have those sort of kind of small little, you know, interactions or sort of kind of, uh, you know, being in an office to sort of get a sense of the office culture and sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, observe how uh, other people work with each other and, you know, uh, how things are supposed to be done. I think that's a real challenge. And so from an HR perspective, you could say like, oh, we get the resumes in the door and we get, you know, this, this is the, this is our time to offer and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's probably working just fine. And, you know, the great resignation may even through kind of add a bit of churn that gives them some sort of, uh, um, you know, more candidates and uh, more possibilities. And so that's good from their perspective. But if you're, you know, the actual, you know, manager or colleagues of a new person that you've never met, I think that would be really difficult to uh, um, to do. And that's maybe sort of kind of what speaks to the uh, the dichotomy that we're seeing there in the uh, um, in the survey results, uh, especially when you have something like COVID bearing down on you, you know, or you know, ha hang, you know, hanging over your head, and and you're bringing people in, and then saying, okay, here's this monster workload that's been, you know, causing us to work 24 hours a day for two years, you know, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know that that on top of, oh, by the way, hi, my name's Derek, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. How's it going? You know, like you, right, you can't, right. you don't even get to go to lunch with the person on the first, you know, like their first day, just to like have a conversation and introduce yourself. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I suspect it's it's difficult. Derek, did you um, come across any um, speculation that you know the criticism that the agency came under, particularly during the Trump administration, you know, complaints that they were sort of politicized, that that you know impacted recruiting or retention. The, they that that didn't come up in the in the report um and it was most a lot of it was you know there was a big section on pandemic related stuff obviously because mm -hmm. they did the assessment in the middle of it but um you didn't get any there was a lot of feeling that kind of the the sense of the the public health mission and the the dedication to the mission was a a real positive and selling point so <laughs> Um, and I, and I heard that when this, I remember hearing that from people when this first, when the pandemic first started way back, whenever that was, um, where people were excited to want to do pandemic related work over there because, you know, you're, you know, you're a public health person. This is the ultimate, this is like the, you know, public health Super Bowl type of thing. You're, you know, you're trying to fix this huge problem that's global and, um, you know, so people people wanted to, were clamoring to get in to do to work on that, and you know, to some extent too, it's kind of like a you know, you see it in the military, it's a resume builder type of thing. Like if you want to advance, you put this on your, you know, on your CV to say I did this, that, or the other thing during the pandemic, and that looks really good. So you see, you have that um, attitude too. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of that is still happening, where you know, people on the outside want to come in. Um, you know, for those reasons. But yeah, I didn't, um, mm. I didn't get any sense or, you know, any, there was no mention that there was, you know, kind of issues with, with that, uh, you know, hurting recruiting or anything. I wouldn't be surprised if it, I mean, if it did, I mean, if, if it's not unspoken, you know, people yeah. think twice about wanting to, you know, putting in the application or, you know, thinking about how that's going to affect them. Um, maybe, if it, maybe the rank and file are sort of insulated from, you know, those, those political, sort of yeah i think they yeah i think they are issues. for the most part i mean you get the you know obviously the the center directors and and the the you know the the um the political appointees are you know obviously they're exposed to that but yeah i think they were i, I want to say that um the opinion was that most people were doing a pretty good job of protecting 
you know, the integrity of reviews and so forth. I mean, there were, you know, a couple of exceptions where stuff seemed to come out that looked a little funny, but um, but for the most part, it seemed to be fine. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing you wonder about is that, you know, now that we want to move on and, you know, the country wants to move on from the pandemic, if the whole sense of mission, come on, let's go fix the greatest problem we've ever seen type of thing, you know, incentive to join the FDA is kind of going away. Mm. Which is, you know, yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know if that's the case. I have no evidence that that's the case. But, you know, FDA had trouble recruiting before this started. So, you know, maybe it's maybe just kind of things are I wonder if things are eventually going to go back, kind of go back to the mean or something like along those lines. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Kathy Kelly and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.